Are you tired of your Raspberry Pi sounding like this? Well, the Raspberry Pi Foundation has got some good news for you. It seems like the thermal performance on the old Pi Forsky is way better these days. Yeah, they've got a great blog post detailing it with some really neat thermal imaging images out there. So you can go take a look and see just where the hotspots are. And how they tested it and what you could do to test it yourself. One thing I found humorous, though, is at the very end, despite all the great improvements that the recent firmware updates have indeed provided, their best recommendation is still to just turn the Raspberry Pi 4 on its side. You're stacking it wrong. friends, and welcome in to the Unplugged program. This is episode 330. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Almost forgot the number. It's, there's too many. Too it's, many to count. It's a lot of numbers, Wes. Hello to Cheese and Alex, too. Hey, gentlemen. Hello, hello. Hello. Well, hello. We have a really fun show. I'm excited to be joined by not just you, but also our virtual lug. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. 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 Hi there. <laughs> Mumble <laughs> Overload. That's Happy right. Happy Linux Tuesday. Happy Linux Tuesday to you too, Jill. And uh, Ace Nomad, Byte, Cassidy, Dan, DM, and I'm going to say Jensen Gruck. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. So we have a lot coming up in the show today. We have some community news, but this episode is the one we've been waiting to do all year. We get to celebrate Linux as an implementation detail with the family. That's right. I mean, we already know Linux is everywhere, but it can be a few more places, especially in your family's home. Now, if you're like me or Wes or Cheesy or Alex or pretty much anyone in the virtual lug, you've likely got a small board computer of some type or you've thought about getting one. Well, how cool would it be if you could make some great holiday gifts out of these suckers? So we're going to talk about ways to do that, but also just some really good projects. If you want to set up backup for yourself this year, if you want to build some mini projects for people yourself or maybe strangers. There's a lot of good ideas in here. Uh, This is basically all the things we love and what we're doing with them for the holidays. Really some great projects we're going to get to. Now, Mr. Payne, some really, really good news for the backers of the Librem 5 this week. It seems that backers have begun receiving their Linux phones, some mostly working. (laughs) Um, But exciting nonetheless to see this. And we all expected when people actually started receiving their devices, it would be all over the internet. And it has. Of course. I mean, who wouldn't be excited? Yeah. And these are geeks, right? That are passionate about the mission. So they want to processize it. It's here and it's great. And it mostly works. For the most part, things are exactly what you would expect. A little rough around the edges or completely rough around the edges. Um, Stability issues have been mentioned. Charging issues doesn't charge when the device is powered up, essentially, is, is a current problem. And uh, battery only lasts about an hour. But there is, in almost all of these reviews being posted, a thread of what seems to be genuine potential. Like, they see the potential here. These yeah. people are not... They're not ripping it up. They're just setting expectations, I think. Right. I mean, you have to view this as a work in pro- progress, an experiment, right? You're out on the cutting edge of... Uh free and open source hardware. Yeah. You can't initiate a call. You can receive a call, I believe, but I think there's something working where um, like they can't hear you, like the audio isn't routing properly or something to that effect. And of course, the phone app tends to crash. It does seem like it's a pretty nice web browser, and while it is thicker than most phones, so far the reviewers seem to think that it's actually quite comfortable to hold. You can get around the actual Linux underpinnings, too. So if you know really what you want is a Linux box, 
mean, it's there for that. Pretty neat to see people receiving them. Um, it's early, early, early. Like some of these are not fully functional. Some of them are very much prototypes. They seem to vary a lot in quality, more than I think we were led to believe. But it is nice to see it out there. And kind of along the same lines, while we're talking about these phones, there's an early look at the PinePhone Developer Edition, which is the one that I pre-ordered. Yeah, Lucas, who we've had on the show recently, uh, did a video, which we'll have linked. It's posted as well over at OMG Ubuntu. And, I I mean, you're only getting like a 10-minute look at this thing, so it's pretty hard to really come away with a, a firm opinion. But it feels a lot further along, and I think a big part of that is they're leveraging an existing software stack. Yes. Right. I mean, from Purism's perspective, there's a lot of stuff that needs to get invented, and a lot of work they've done is things that aren't at that fit and finish layer, at least not yet. And something that I've only recently um, come to appreciate, thanks to Cheese's conversations with Pine, is that uh, they have some genuine experience with smaller systems based around these components. Like, they... The Popcorn Hour is a shipping commercial product that exists today and has existed for a very long time. Right, and that seems to be a lot of the challenges here, right? There's, it's a unique space with its own constraints and uh, a lot of difficulty getting the right components. Good video, though, so we'll have that linked in the show notes if you want to see the status of the Pine phone. For those that are still waiting, which I don't know if I consider myself anymore, but for those of you that are still waiting for that free Linux phone, it's getting closer. It's getting closer. Yeah, really, wherever we're at, it's exciting to see progress. And for all the folks that are interested in it, we're getting closer. What will be the threshold for you? So you've got a Pixel 3, right? Yeah, Pixel 3. Uh, pretty nice phone. Yes. I mean, pretty good camera. I'm honestly using my phone more and more as a, an appliance. So I think that angle is a little easier to replace. Right? I need a few apps, mostly for work. The camera is the, the kicker for me, though, because I just love having a decent camera in my pocket all day long. Yeah, the camera's really good, too, on the Pixel line. I wouldn't mind having a little full Linux device in my pocket, though, maybe not for using as a traditional phone, but just for sitting on the couch or carrying with me as a mobile workstation. Would it be more appealing if it was a foldable device with an actual physical QWERTY keyboard? Yeah, probably. I know. Isn't that funny? We've already, we've already built these. You know that they're actually working on a keyboard uh, for the Pine Phone too. Oh, buddy. Oh, buddy. See, that's what I'm talking about. They get me. They get me. All right. Well, so we'll have links if you guys want to read more about that. But we have some big news to talk about. A brand, shiny, fancy, fantastic release of Elementary OS. Elementary OS 5.1. Cassidy and Dan, congratulations on the new release, gentlemen. Woo-hoo! Thank you. Thank you. I have been kicking the tires on this one for the weekend. And I am so impressed with what you guys have accomplished with this release. You are truly crossing that uncanny valley that we have struggled to to really fully cross for so long with desktop Linux. And now, in some areas, I think you guys are exceeding the quality of experience that you get on commercial platforms in multiple categories now. So that's like a huge achievement on its own. Um, and there is so much in this release that uh, I guess I'll start with you, Dan. Why is this a dot one release? This seems like this should be like 5.5, 5.8, maybe even six. Like there is um, new login screens. There's a new greeter that's the best greeter. The new onboarding app is the best onboarding app on any desktop. Incredible. It's so good. It's nice, clean. Um, the only thing I would add is maybe like a little boutique style couple apps. But other than that, it's so perfect. The Flatpak integration, you nailed it. It's great. I love the dialogues I get when I'm installing Flatpaks. 
So why is this not just a whole new version? So Dan's internet's actually dropping out, so it's just me right now. (laughs) Cassidy, answer why is this just not a whole new version? So the big thing is that it's still based on the same solid core of Juno, which means it's uh, Ubuntu 18.04 LTS uh, based with the Ubuntu 18.04 repositories under the hood. So it didn't feel right to say that it's a whole new like 6.0 version. But at the same time, we wanted to like give it a new name and, and point release because there is just so much new stuff in this release. There's also, if I'm understanding correctly, all of the hardware enablement stuff from the underlying 18.04 updates that have come along. Exactly. So it's basically uh, the same core as uh, Ubuntu 18.04.3 uh, with Linux 5. whatever the latest is and the, all the hardware enablement stuff that comes along with that. That's so really thanks, nice. thanks to Canonical for all that awesome work. And uh, that's, that's why we enjoy building off the LTS because we get this really solid foundational platform, but we can have a more rolling release style on top of it. Right. You know, things aren't going to change out from under you. Exactly. This is starting to address what my experience as somebody who's just a Linux desktop enthusiast and just enjoys all the different new things that are constantly being developed. My experience with elementary in the past had been, it's sort of a tease. Like I see all these other great things like do not disturb mode and night color shifting coming to other desktops. And I think, oh man, I really would love to have this on an elementary. And in the past, I would have waited quite a bit longer. But now these things are coming at a much faster clip. And when they do land, they're like the best implementation period. Uh, the the recent, uh, do you call it nightlight? The, the, the recent tone shifting that people can turn on for nighttime color mode? Yeah, nightlight. Yeah. Man, uh, Cassidy. It's just a great implementation where once you turn it on, there's a little icon up in the beautiful toolbar that's up there. I don't know what you call that, the Pantheon, that top bar. Top panel, yeah. Top panel, it's gorgeous. Up there, a little like a little sun icon shows up, and you can click that, and you can snooze it with one button. There's a couple of quick options. It's so slick. It's so well done um, that when these features do land— they seem to be one of the best implementations of them. Right, it's a microcosm maybe of the whole philosophy over at elementary. So what has been the enabler that's that's meant that, I feel like this is the, maybe the third time we've had a, a version of this conversation with this release. Like they're landing faster and they're landing in the current releases. What's been the big shift that's happened? Is it a philosophical thing? Is it a resources thing? I think it's partially philosophical. Um, we've kind of always had this mentality, but I think we've we've really kind of hit our stride with it now where we don't hold back features from the current release. As, as much and often as we can, we push out updates to the, the current release. Um, you know, it adds features, improves features, you know, maybe even redesigns entire apps or parts of the settings uh, because it gives our users a better experience. So it's more of that rolling release mentality. And we've, we've had that for the last few releases, but what's enabled it for us now is that we have so much automation going into our release process that it means somebody can report a bug or somebody can design a new feature and then the next day that can be hitting users. So it's, it's so fast now and it's really, really great. Wow. And that, that has come online between the previous release and this release? Yeah, so that's been a lot of our work over the last uh, month or two, probably, for kind of preparing for this 5.1 release to help enable that. And so it's automating the app releases and automating the ISO building, and that all kind of came together for 5.1. <laughs> that's got to feel like almost a new superpower. Like, the, you've been upgraded. <laughs> yeah, it's so awesome. It's And we really just in the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing, like, literally somebody will report a bug, 
and then it gets approved and merged and fixed and out the next day and it's like oh that feels so good that that's where software should be it's more continuous instead of waiting you know in some cases in some operating systems you'd be waiting months for that update sure yeah I think, too, the overall experience I get is, I use that uncanny valley analogy, it's like there's so many little areas that have been smoothed out that make it a more comprehensive product. Um, I really, really like Pantheon. It is, at first, not everything is super obvious, but it is pretty easy to discover. Like, if you hit the super key, a menu comes up, and it's very clear on what you can do, and Within minutes, I was, oh, so this is how I do multiple desktops. Right. This is how I move stuff around. And it's slick. It's smooth. Why is why is Pantheon so much smoother than some other projects that are based around similar technologies? What What is it in there? Is it the way you guys are hitting the GPU? Is it uh, magic? I mean, maybe maybe a little bit of magic. Um, but no, it's. I think it's, you know, we've been working on like a decade now on uh, UX-focused development. And all of our features are UX first. You know, we don't think about, oh, here's a new technology. Now let's find a way to implement it in the UI. Mm. We think, what do we actually want the UI to do and how do we want it to feel and work for the user? And then we we build the, the technology to support that. Mm. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, I mean, honestly, another big part is that we are building off of really solid technologies. A lot of stuff that's um, enabled from the GNOME upstream projects. So we're not using GNOME Shell, but we're using Mutter, which is the the window manager. So improvements there trickle down into elementary OS. So we have these really solid technologies and can kind of mold them and shape them how we want to create our own experience. I see. So that's great. I didn't quite appreciate that upstream Mutter improvements benefited the Pantheon desktop. And that kind of maybe explains some of the performance improvements that I'm I'm noticing. Um, okay, so now I have a couple questions for you that are more like, why aren't you doing this questions? Um, you're sort of one of the leading voices of a desktop standard, like a free desktop standard dark mode. I note, though, that dark mode is notably absent from elementary 5.1. Yes, it's not perfect yet. So we're doing a lot of work under the hood and behind the scenes and working with other projects to help standardize this, but it's actually, it actually hasn't been standardized yet in GTK or a free desktop spec yet. So while we could just throw in like a a hammer to, you know, smash dark mode onto your desktop, um, it it still can cause breakage in certain areas. Mm. So we don't feel comfortable enabling that because it's, it's not as good of an experience as it can be, but we are definitely working, working in that direction. That makes sense. I mean, it kind of hits on what you're talking about earlier, right? Other distributions might not make that choice, but that's the way you guys are doing things. Yeah, it's it's part of the philosophical difference, I think, of elementary OS compared to other projects is we really, 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 and not to say other desktops don't, you know, care about the UX, but we we're kind of fanatical about it. (laughs) Um, And and so we'll, we'll be willing to not ship a feature early uh, so that we can get it right and then ship it to users when it's when it feels really good. Yeah, I mean, and at this point, <laughs> where we're sitting, I mean, that's clearly working. Uh, you can't argue with, like, early on, I was like, I don't know, guys, who are you to decide? But now I'm like, oh, yeah, they've got, they've got this figured out. Okay, so the second question is, and this kind of plays off what you were saying earlier about how you don't just go and build something once the underlying tech is there. I was surprised. I installed uh, one of the flat packs I decided to sideload, just to just experiment with this flat pack and support, was GNOME firmware which installs, but then complains 
excessively that there's no LVFS support on the system. But that doesn't come from Ubuntu automatically. Is there plans down the road to integrate that into App Center? Have you guys looked at LVFS firmware updates for uh, like laptops and whatnot? Yeah, so that's a, a feature that we've looked at. Um, I've prototyped some stuff actually related to that. Uh, I, I think we we plan to support uh, Flupt, you know, for the firmware update daemon and LVFS. It's just we haven't built that out quite yet. Um, there's still, I think, an open question too of do firmware updates belong in your app store or in mm. your system settings? And so we kind of have to figure out what we want that experience to actually feel like and look like before we start building it. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, and GNOME firmware is good, but I don't I don't know if the display and the way it gives out information is really up to standard. Yeah, and it it feels pretty gnome which um, GNOME and Elementary, <laughs> we share a lot of technologies, but we have different human interface guidelines and, and styles, so it, it feels a little weird to shove a GNOME thing into Elementary or an Elementary thing into GNOME. So I think, I mean, right today you can do it from the command line. We use, you can install Flupt and, and use it from the command line. Obviously, oh, okay. that's not the best experience, so we're looking at how we want to integrate it into the desktop itself. But there's a means, should somebody need to you know, update a ThinkPad or something like that that they've recently got. Yeah, I've got a, a Dell Precision and I run my updates from that and uh, 8-bit Dell controller and gotten updates for that, my Logitech keyboard and stuff. So it's it's definitely there and working. We just got to integrate it into the UI. There's just a, one other thing I thought we should touch on um, because you guys do such a great job at it. But I, I didn't really note when this started happening, but I definitely noticed it because of the new onboarding process that... In the background, Elementary OS is doing a bit of uh, housekeeping and keeping temp files clean and logs. Like, it's it, is that um, is that a new-ish feature? Because that seems pretty cool. Yeah, I think that launched with uh, Juno with 5.0, but a lot of people didn't know about it, and yeah. that's that's a big reason uh, onboarding is really nice. We, we've had people tweeting at us like in the past couple of weeks leading up to 5.1 about. Things are like, oh, I got this new 5.1 feature. It's like, well, it's actually been in elementary OS for a while, but now that you have onboarding, you can say, oh, Nightlight's a cool feature that I didn't know about, or right. you know, uh, housekeeping to clean up that stuff. So I, I think that's been there since 5.0, and it's enabled by the GNOME settings daemon. But it's just we've found a way to better expose it to users. It makes all the difference, um, and that's what's so good about that new onboarding thing. Is you get you expose really good features in a totally non-obnoxious way. <laughs> so I, I really appreciate that. But I, the one last thing I wanted to touch on is because I think you guys are doing kind of a special job at this is constant iteration and improvements on accessibility features. It's not something I personally follow, but I know that it matters a lot to certain people. And I know there's been some improvements in 5.1 in that regard. Yeah, so actually I recently gave a talk at the, the Linux App Summit about this. Um, our philosophy, we kind of shifted our philosophy in the last year or two that accessibility features are just features um, rather than kind of putting these features away in a little closet called universal access where only people who you know have severe physical disabilities find them. Mm. Uh, we've decided that it's better and, and it's features get better tested and more well supported if we actually just support them as a standard feature of the operating system and more people who might not think they need an accessibility feature actually end up using and, and benefiting from these so that's been the focus um, a lot of that has been in system settings so things like text scaling instead of being under an accessibility setting it's just in the desktop settings now yeah 
I think that's a brilliant outlook on it because I'm one of those people. Right. <laughs> and it fits with the sort of Linux world, right? We want to be able to tinker with and yeah. modify these things. I really like the tech size one specifically. That was the one I played with on this latest install just to see how do I feel about it because I'm on a 2K display. And having mm-hmm. slightly larger text size was nice. You know me, Wes. I love the 2K you resolution. Love those 2K. <laughs> so I really thought that was a great idea. And I think that's a perfect outlook to have on it. Yeah, and the analogy I like to use is curb cuts. It's like where, where a sidewalk meets a road, um, and you have the curb that is like a little ramp up to the sidewalk. Uh-huh. Those were designed for for wheelchair users originally, but like those are those are useful features for anybody yeah. to to take advantage of. So we like to we have this effort we call curb cuts around elementary OS of things that help access accessibility, but actually can be useful to everybody. And I think it's starting to show. That's a good insight into the project. Um, and you know, I use those curb cuts when I'm rolling around on my blades. Uh, Cheese, I know exactly. You had something too you wanted to touch on. Uh, yeah, so I have a question for you, Cassidy. Um, first of all, I, you know, I've, I've been running the latest 5.1 here for, I don't know, a couple of hours and just tinkering with it. Uh, one thing that you guys do that's really different from anyone else with the App Center is that you give people the opportunity to donate to these projects, um, to their favorite pieces of software. But one thing that I've noticed is across installs, there's no real... Um, say elementary account based system, like maybe you would have with Mac OS or something like that, where you can continue to log in. So, um, if I reload my laptop, I can log back in and all the software that I've previously purchased is available for me to download again. Are there any plans to maybe put some sort of feature into the app center like that so that users who have purchased software can log back into the app center and redownload the software that they've already purchased? Yeah, definitely. Um, today there's actually a way to do it from the terminal to like export your purchases and then re-import them. And it's kind of hidden, not super easy. So we don't like expose that for everybody to do because it's not the greatest experience, but it's possible. Kind of the holdup there today is we're very, very fanatic about not like having a, a server where we have user accounts and store user information. Um, but we do have a way we can do that in the future using um, actually our payment processor Stripe has a customer's feature where we're not actually like storing any data about users on our infrastructure, but we could have a restore purchases option. So that's definitely something we're working on and looking into. Um, and alongside that, actually, we're working with the folks at Flatpak and Flathub to enable payments for Flathub or for Flatpaks themselves. Awesome. Um, so Alexander Larson's doing some awesome work there. Um, there's a new release of Flatpak coming out soon that should support that. And a lot of our work will be focused on on um, enabling payments and payment restor- restoration with Flatpaks. Yeah, I'm looking forward to see where they go with that. Um, that is coming soon to Flatpaks, and I think that's going to make that's going to make a huge difference over at Flathub. Even if it's just for donations initially, to just say thank you for making this. Right, having it built right in. Yeah. Well, Cassidy, thank you for coming. Uh, uh, sorry, Dan, that uh, your internet connection was cutting out. But Cassidy, you covered it great and really enjoying the new release. I encourage everyone, check the link out in the show notes, read the release notes because they're the best, and then grab grab an ISO because it's the best. Um, just such a solid release every time. Like, I can't remember the last time we've been like, boy, that new elementary OS sure is crap. I really blew it this time, didn't I? You guys nail it every single time. Every single time. So the wait is worth it. I say congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Go get 5.1. It's killer. Now, with that said, it's time for a little housekeeping. 
First and foremost, going to mention right here at the top of the housekeeping, Linux headlines are daily, every weekday, Linux podcast, in three minutes or less, everything that's happening in Linux and open source. And uh, this thing is packed full of information. We've got a dedicated research person on there, plus our editors review the content, plus often multiple hosts review every single episode before it gets published. We're doing like our real best on this thing. That's right. Every single episode is a team effort. It's damn impressive. And you can grab it at linuxheadlines.show slash subscribe. While we're recording this here episode, another one's about to get posted. Right. I love it. I mean, it just helps me stay up to date, and that means less time I have to spend on Prep. Linux subreddit yeah. or Hacker News or any place searching for news. We, we took our, our news pipeline collection and just grew it and expanded it, and it's really meant that everyone on the team is staying very up to date now. And it's um, easy to listen to, right? There's some support on uh, a little smart speaker near you. Yeah, it's true. You can get it in your daily briefing if you got one of them uh, echo tubes. And uh, you can just subscribe at linuxheadlines.show slash subscribe, three minutes or less. And we aim for your afternoon commute if you're a commuter, too. So you can just pop it on before you listen to anything else and get an update. That's what I do. Just pop it on. I pop it on. That's what I do, Wes. I pop it on. There's something I'm thinking about doing this Friday. This could be a really bad idea, especially since it's like the holidays and I already do enough as it is and you all have enough going on as it is and nobody needs one more thing. But I thought... If you're around this Friday afternoon, as of this ep- when this episode's airing, maybe we do a little get-together. Some distros and drinks. Ooh. Something I'm thinking about doing. Are you uh, supplying the drinks? No. Ah, BYOD okay, on that one. Got it. <laughs> I'll probably be sipping on a Red Bull myself, but maybe a beer ski. We'll see. If, if, if enough people take me up on this, I might go get some beer ski. You will be providing some tips, though, right? Yeah, so here's the deal. Uh... I don't know if this is something I want to do all the time, but I thought I'd give it a try. And so for this week, I thought, let's do a little live setting up Plasma session, how I configure my Plasma desktop. Now that I've been back on Plasma for a few weeks, I got some things to share. So tweak your Plasma setup along with me from basic to brilliant. I will back him up. He tweaked my Plasma install, and I've been loving it. (laughs) You just loved it. It's great. Um, And I'll have the mumble room going. I'll have the IRC going, the live stream going. So you can just watch along as I go from zero to hero with my Plasma setup. And uh, maybe take a few of the suggestions yourself. I'll do a screen cap of it. I'll be on mic and walking you through it. I also thought this would be a good time to try out some meetup alternatives. Because meetup's going in a bad direction. Meetup.com has been a go-to resource, but... They're charging coming and going these days. So I'm trying out gettogether.community. I'll have a link in the show notes. Gettogether.community. Distros and drinks with me on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific to 3.30 p.m. Pacific. So translate that to your local time. And then they just go to jblive.tv. Right? Find all the links. Yep. We'll have the we'll have all the streams up if you want to do I don't this might be a dumb idea. First of all, nobody uses gettogether.community. So I'm probably not going to get people to register. So then I won't know if anybody's going to be there. And because it's Friday before the holidays, nobody's going to show up. But if you do show up and it becomes a thing, I'll probably start doing like distro reviews from time to time. Try out different distros on the live stream. Because I got the capture all set up. So link for the get together page. I know it means like you got to create another account somewhere. It's easy though. I've tried it. Yeah, they got single sign on too. So that's not so bad. Hey, go check out Jupiter Extras, extras.show, Brunch with Brent, episode 36 of Jupiter Extras. Wow, we've done 36 of these things. But this one's a special one. He sat down with Rocco, Big Daddy Linux. Oh. Great little chat. Brunch with Brent at extras.show. 
And you know, rumor has it, you, if you fiddle around with the categories on that their site, there's a way you can get a feed just for Brunch with Brent. Oh, some sort of magical tag system? Can't confirm that. How would I know? <laughs> I can't confirm that. But uh, check that out, extras.show. It's also Jupiter Extras is is up on YouTube. And hey, look, after our call out, we got 76 subscribers. Thanks, guys. Yeah, if you'd like to be notified of new brunches or any other extra, that's probably the easiest way. We're going to need more, though, because I think you need 100 at least to get a name. We believe in you, community. So, so I have a link to that. We need you to go over to our extras YouTube channel and subscribe for us so we can name our YouTube channel. <laughs> so it's, really, it's really a team effort here. It's so dumb the way YouTube works, but we would appreciate it. We'll have a link to that. And then last but not least, you know what I'm going to mention, Wes? Because I can. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash Telegram. Boom. Our Telegram group is going seven days a week, 24 hours. It's amazing. I try to stop in there several times a day minimum. A lot of us are in there. So if you want to chat with us, get something in front of us, or just talk about a show episode, the community is always roaring at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash telegram. And um, big shout out because I often will bounce things off of people in there to get their take on it. Uh, People will give me follow-up ideas to shows in there. So just shout out to that room. Over a thousand strong and just a bunch of awesome individuals at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash telegram. We don't mention it enough for how great it is. So go check that out. Anything else for the housekeeping there, Mr. Payne? I think that does it. All righty then. So giving the gift of Linux this year, it really is true that For most of the world, Linux is an implementation detail. We don't like it. It drives us crazy. Hey, that Android device. Hey, that's got Linux on it. You know, they don't don't care. I mean, at most, they give you that. Oh, yeah. Nice. Huh. Oh, yeah. Isn't that the thing on the cloud? Yeah, that's what the cloud's made of. So I thought this time, let's just embrace it. And let's give friends and family little trinkets and gadgets and, and gifts Right, the, the gift to ourselves is we get to play with this stuff, and then the gift to them is some sort of working device that they don't have to know runs right. Linux. This is a little cheesy, but when you're ah, geez, but when you're giving gifts to friends and family that you've known for a while, or acquaintances, you know, work people, whatevs, there is something about getting a custom-made gift. I know that sounds sort of cliche, but it, it is true. Like if somebody gave you something they made. I, I like. I did a thing where I gave out. I've talked talked about this. I gave out Wi-Fi access points and picture frames one year. The family loved it. It really was like it was a little kit I put together. Everything was all set up. The SSID, the the WPA password, the photo frame it was all good to go. Well, that's just it, right? I mean, most of the time the gifts are just a, something to show that you're thinking and, and have care for those people. And yeah. what's better than spending some time working on a project? Well, this really got kicked off into high gear when Michael wrote into the show. This is what happens when we start reading the feedback more, Wes. Uh, He wrote in and said, uh, I recall back in episode 230 that Wes was setting up a NAS for his family. Well, fast forward, and now I've decided that in 2020, it's my my goal to do the same thing. Uh, He's wondering also if you have any updates, but wants to know, how would you do it today if you're going to go about it, and what would you build? Um, he also says, thanks for the amazing podcast, uh, Michael, subscribing from Germany. So he wants to know, if we were going to do the same thing, give the family or a gift of like a, a Linux box or something that solves a problem out of the box, what would our approach be today? And I think it's pretty different than it was a couple of years ago. I think a couple of years ago, uh, I wouldn't have had as nearly as many small board computer type projects. No. They use Raspberry Pis or or the Pine 64. Right. I ended up deploying a NUC at my folks' house, kind of. For yeah. that reason. But in those situations, it's several hundreds of dollars. 
And now this year, it's like, well, this is 35 bucks to do this. This one's going to be 60 bucks to that's, do that. That's gift category right exactly. there. Exactly. So I am not doing this one, but I almost pulled this one off for my mom this year. It just didn't quite work out. I'm really going to recommend people consider giving the gift of network backups. And you can make it really easy. There is a piece of open source software that has saved my bacon a few times, and it's called Backup PC. It's a brilliant, brilliant backup software that works over SSH and Samba and NFS and various other networking protocols. You can support all operating systems. It's easy to deploy as a Docker image. It's a little challenging to deploy on your system itself, but you can. And I think Backup PC, even if it's just one or two computers and a USB hard drive plugged into a Pi, would be a fantastic gift. And if they already have a computer on the network that would be capable of this, you could load Backup PC on that oh, for right them. there, yeah. And it's, mm. Backup PC gives you a nice web UI to backup and restore files. And one of the things it's really smart about is el- eliminating duplicate images by looking at the block, ha- like I don't actually recall how it does it, but I'm going, I, I assume it hashes the files, looks at each, it does a hash for all the files, and then it compares the hashes, and when there's duplicate hashes, it sets up hard links instead of actually copying the file a bunch of times. And so you end up using a surprisingly little amount of disk space, um, having backed up uh, so network servers. So it's almost as good as ZFS? <laughs> well, you could have it all stored on ZFS. And then one other is just, uh, don't do, I'm not doing, but but I think you could do, and I almost did for my dad this year, Piehole. We talk about it a lot. Piehole is a black hole for internet advertisements. You throw it on a device, you set it up for the family members, you tweak their DHCP, and now on every device they own forever, they've got ad blocking. What I like about that is ad blocking is fairly easy if you know what you're doing, but that's not always where your family members are, right? So this is something you can put in place. They don't have to think about it. You should probably tell them about it, I suppose. Otherwise, you won't get credit. But after that, it just works. DM, you have a backup, uh, backup solution for people? It's called uh, Veeam Agent. They have uh, Veeam Agent for Linux, Veeam Agent for uh, Windows. It's not open source, but it's really good because you can uh, you can back up you can uh, back up the system, and then you can do bare metal restore. So if you you can pretty much restore the whole system or restore a single file. That's nice. When you install the app, it lets you create like a recovery media. Uh, oh, okay. And, and it's it's really good for especially for you know, people that, that it's kind of like you back up everything and then you pick whatever you want to restore after. Right. Which uh, most of the time people even, they don't know what they want until it's too late. <laughs> Amen. And they don't, and they don't know how, how valuable it is and how much they appreciate it until they need it. It really is a thing. It also does deduplication on the backup level. So you also uh, uh, kind of like uh, save a lot of space on the, on the backups and stuff. So I, I I've been using it on uh a large enterprise scale, but it's also free for, uh, you know, home users and stuff like that. So it, uh, it's not open source, but it's great. Veeam gets a plus one from me. I, I use it all the time in my network. Uh, also worth an honorable mention in the Pi Hole category is the newer AdGuard Home, which you can also run on a Pi as well, which does much the same thing. But I find generally I prefer the interface to AdGuard. Yeah, I've been meaning to try that. That does look really good. That's a good mention. Um, and... I thought maybe there's still a chance I might do one of these. So I wanted to put them on this list. Wes and I have two particular projects we are doing for our family this year, which we'll tell you about. But I want to take a moment to talk about the obvious elephant in the room. It is so easy these days 
to build a tiny little retro arcade machine. It's so easy that you could even you could even gift it in a tiny retro NES case. What? For 30 bucks, I have it linked in the show notes, you get an NES case built for, to hold the Raspberry Pi. Look at that handsome thing. You get a cooling fan, you get two USB Super Nintendo rip-off controllers that plug into the ports in the front that are USB. We won't just mix and match the way that controller doesn't make sense with the case, but that's fine. If somebody were to open this and you tell them, yeah, you, it does HDMI out, you can plug it into your current TV and play all your old favorite games, they would love this little thing. I mean, it is adorable. Right, great for kids or just old farts who still love video games. I'm going on a holiday shopping trip with my dad. I do it every year. And I always try to drop a few hints to see like what he bites on. And this is definitely on the possibilities list because it's just the presentation of the whole thing where it's in a, it's in a, it's in a retro Nintendo case and you can load it with something called I'm going to say Laka. Yeah, I think Laka. L-A-K-K-A. Laka. It's a DIY open source retro gaming console distro that you can flash on a device or you can load on even on an x86 machine. And it's got a, ver- a, a sort of a PlayStation-inspired UI. So if you like the PS3 UI style and the PS4. Oh, nice. It's a little more PS3, PS2, but it's nice. It's a classic side-scrolling UI. Something very easy. Looks really good. And of course, Cheese, you love RetroArch. Yeah, RetroArch is uh, fantastic. And you can extend that, uh, which is basically what Laka uses uh, on the back end. But you can extend that to all of the consoles that are out there right now. Uh, apparently, even it supports iOS and Apple TV. Um, so if you're really into retro gaming, that that's probably a great solution for you as well to look at. Maybe, although you built me a little Odroid Go Game Boy-like thing that uh, is also one of those like perfect kind of gifts at the holidays. Tell, tell me a little bit about this because I've got it in my hands right now, and it I'd, looks slick. It looks, it looks, it's it's got a transparent case, so you can see the board in there, and you can see the battery, which is super cool, and it's shaped like a old Game Boy. Yeah, so uh, the Odroid Go is um, very similar to Adafruit's Pi Girl, which is it's kind of a Game Boy uh, sort of handheld console, retro handheld console. Uh, but what differs from the Pi Girl and the Odroid Go, first off, Odroid makes single board computers as well. Um, but this uses the ESP32 microcontroller instead of a Raspberry Pi. Um, so you're going to get a lot more uh, battery. You're going to get a lot more playtime out of it. Um, it also has a header on top, so you can break out that header. I think they have, hey, there you go. Um, I think that header will allow you to expand it and do some other things. They have some attachments for it. I'm not sure exactly uh, what so great. Uh, attachments are available for it right now. I think there's a microphone uh, or something like that available for it. And you can also just, <laughs> since it's a microcontroller, you can play with it and you can have it do just about anything you want. So if you wanted to turn it into a portable weather station or... Um, a tricorder of sorts. You could do that with with this little device. A and tricorder. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it's it's really it's super simple, right? So instead of having to solder it all together, it comes as a kit, and you can assemble it. But it's really easy to assemble, really easy to put together. So it's something that you could hand your kid and say, "Hey, you know, put this together, build something," and they would have this you know sense of accomplishment once they put it together and fired it up and got their first games going on it for sure. Yeah, I love it. It's one of my favorite little things, and I, I love also just showing it to my kids and be like, here, this is what video games was like when I was your age. You know, I do one of those moves with it. Isn't which it is, great? Which is extremely satisfying because I can be like, see if you can beat that kid. 
Um, it's a really nice little gift, and I think anybody, new or old gamer, would be very, very happy with this thing. So we have links to this stuff, the Odre Go and the kit, in the uh, in the show notes. You, you got to check that out. But I love some of the ideas that came in from the audience. Dennis sent me an idea. He says, when you when you have a Raspberry Pi around a three B plus somewhere level or or better. It, you have endless options. You have all kinds of things you can do. He built, and we'll have a link to this to check this out in the show notes, a beautiful wood case around this Look thing. Look at that. I mean, I don't know if he hand-built this or if he assembled it from various parts or what he did, but he put an LCD screen inside a like a maple-stained case. It's it's a gorgeous little computer right there. Just got a little wireless keyboard and mouse connected. Mm-hmm. That's all you need. Mm-hmm. And he can put it in photo frame mode if he wants when he's when he's not using no. it. So he's also got a little photo frame That's there. That's so slick. It's a great idea. Um, so you can you can um, you can get a little inspiration by checking out the pictures there. But it's also worth mentioning you could set somebody up a Cody Jellyfin setup on a Raspberry Pi and give it to him and say, here, plug this into your television. This is set up now to connect to my Jellyfin library. Yeah, I, I had that set up with MB for a while, but I'm going to try it out with Jellyfin, I think, over this holidays. And I just like that it makes it easy to share anything I'm watching with my family. And they don't have to learn any sort of new interface. They've been using Kodi before. So once the database backend's plugged right in, and you can do the same thing with Plex, yep. they just keep on going and magically new content appears. Yeah, it's nice to see. And I, I figures that it would exist, but it's nice to see a Jellyfin plugin for Kodi, or Jellyfin app, in Cody, so you can keep using the Cody player and all of that, but you can get that Jellyfin database. What a great way to share family movies, too, even if it's just for that kind of stuff. So that's an obvious one. But Wes, you're going like a whole other a whole other level with this one. For for this year, you're building essentially Sonos in a box, but but it's not it's not Sonos speakers. No, it's speakers powered by the Raspberry Pi. It turns out there's a whole bunch of high-end audiophile gear that's made for the Raspberry Pi. All kinds of different hats and attachments and DACs that you can get so that if you want to drive speakers of basically any kind, you can use a Pi properly configured to do that. And there's a whole bunch, almost too many options for Linux, of synchronizing audio to multiple devices. So if you can marry those two things... I think you're set. I haven't decided quite on the stack. I want a new one I saw was Strobe Audio, which Mm -hmm. if people remember from the Coder Radio days, I'm a lover of things hipsters like Elm (laughs) and Elixir, and both of those technologies are in Strobe. Um, But there's also an old favorite Snapcast, which will do the same sort of thing. Okay. I really think Strobe Audio is worth a go. It looks really solid. And the thing that this does, that I think is worth just wrapping your noodle around for a second, is it allows you to get synchronized audio from any speaker. You got some old computer speakers sitting around, or you've got great home entertainment speakers. You've got a whole range of options, which means you can fill audio in anywhere in your home. Like everybody probably has an old computer speaker somewhere, and you want just a little bit of mid somewhere, just add it to that. So Strobe Audio, amongst the others, looks like a great option to handle all of that math over the network. Make sure everybody's talking the same lingo at the same time. Right. I mean, you know, Sonos and similar products are, are definitely out there, but not only are they expensive, they have their own way of operating, and I don't, I just don't think that that's right for the people in my life and the people that they know, and something that can integrate with their existing systems and maybe even just take input from, say, a CD player, that's going to be a lot more flexible. I like this a lot because I was gifted an old set of theater speakers by my dad when he upgraded to like a Sono soundbar or something. Of course. <laughs> He's like, here, you want all these old speakers? And I'm like, dad, these are great speakers. 
But he doesn't want to add, deal with all the hassle of wiring them all up. This I could easily use, especially with some of these DACs you link. That's really cool. Uh, so strobe audio on a Raspberry Pi and then audio out. See, what I was thinking you could do is just a really simple, cheap, just USB sound card. You know, it doesn't have to be, you don't even have to go fancy DAC unless you're really aiming at high-end speakers. But you're right, yeah, especially for things you just want something in the bathroom or a kitchen device while right. you're cooking. I mean, like 70% of what I would use this would be podcasts. I just want, po- I want to walk around everywhere and hear the podcast. So, okay, here's, here's another project. I didn't include it in the doc. I'd like to extend some Wi-Fi from, from the main house that my folks have uh-huh. down to their sheds. Yeah. Oh. And then if I could get this going too, right? You could have <laughs> same music, both places. Yeah. Sonos, but not quite. I like that. All right, so here's what I'm doing. This is kind of on theme for me in the last year, and especially now that Alex is uh, the devil on my shoulder. I'm giving the gift of self-hosted automation for Christmas. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about that. Why? I thought you'd love the idea. <laughs> I've just got this picture of a little me, 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 me on your uh, shoulder. <laughs> uh, oh, that part. Yeah, I know. Tell me about it, right? <laughs> hey, Chris, buy this. <laughs> um, no, I thought, you know what? I've got two Raspberry Pi 3s. And I'm going to put Hass.io on those suckers, which we talk more about in Self-Hosted. So check out selfhosted.show. And I'm going to buy it with a Costa Smart Plug because Home Assistant has a built-in integration to work over the LAN with the Costa Smart Plugs, nice. which are made by TP-Link. And I like a one-pack is, I think, $20. You can get it or something like that. You can get a two-pack for 35 bucks. Oh, we should talk. We should talk. We should get you a better plug than that. I know, but see, this isn't for me. This is for the family. So, I, you know, I, I can get them this as a built-in integration, and I'm going to give them the gift of an automated smart tree because— We just want something that's running Tasmota. That's what we want, really. I know. If you want to send me a plug to use, you got okay, a couple of weeks. I can do that. <laughs> but others, I'm going to link the TP link in there. I, it's all explained and self-hosted. Um, but I think automating the Christmas tree— is a great way to make it click for people. And I'm just going to set it up for the smart plug to just have a sunrise-sunset automation. So it's oh, suns- an hour before sunset, turn the tree on. All right, I'm, I'm stealing this because it's also great for like outside lights that you don't have to go out in the cold and Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. If that's a, that'd be, that would be a killer angle. I hadn't even considered the outside lights. And if you combine it, I know I have got some, uh, some family members a little skeptical of all these smart devices and just what's happening with their data. So uh-huh. if you can also add in the gift of like, look, this is all offline. You can it unplug your internet. Yes. Yeah. Uh, TP-Link also makes an outdoor smart plug that has been weatherized with like oh, perfect. rubber uh, covers and whatnot. Um, and I just think it's such a great way to be like, look, this is that, for me, it's like, this is that thing I talk about all the time, <laughs> you know? And I'm always talking about this thing. And, you Turns know, out it is useful. Yeah, and th- here it is. And when you put them, and I have, I have an old flirt case for the Raspberry Pi 3 that I never used, and I've got a Raspberry Pi 3 in the box still, and I'm just going to open them both up, put this together. I think I'll do Raspbian, and then I'll do Hassio. well... I'm either going to do Home Assistant or Hass.io. I'm not sure. Which is, Hass.io is like, it's a whole distro itself. So right. I could go that route. I haven't decided what I, because I do like the idea of being able to put other things on there. Are you wanting to run this as an appliance? Because that's what it boils down to. That's what I got. That's the, do I want to run this as an appliance or do I also want to do other things for them? And I think the appliance angle is the way to go. Pitch it as a complete product. It does this. Yep. And uh, I think that's, I think I'll go Hass.io. And that's easier with all these small board computers, right? Because if you need another appliance, you don't have to combine them. You just get another one. Now, something we're going to touch on before we wrap up is a super crazy, dead easy, nat-busting way 
to remote support all of these things we're giving out. I am setting up remote access on everything this year. I am backdooring every box, or I'm sorry, I'm setting up a service login on everything I give away this year. And we'll tell you how we're both Wes and I are doing that. But she's had a really great idea for a, um, a, a possible another take on the backup solution outside of my kind of half-baked idea. <laughs> <laughs> I've been running Open Media Vault on uh, Orange Pi Zero now for a little bit. Um, and it's, it's a great little easy-to-use backup solution. Um, so what I did is over Black Friday, they had the Samsung Evo uh, one terabyte SSDs on sale for 100 bucks. Um, right, yep. So for my brother and his entire family, immediate family, um, I'm setting up an Orange Pi Zero, which is about a $10 single-board computer paired with uh, a little external um, SSD case uh, with that one terabyte drive set up in there. And they have iPads and just some various little different, you know, laptops and odds and ends um, that I wanted to be able for him to use to easily back up the whole household and still have access to uh, in case they need it. So, you know, all in, I'm looking at about 120 bucks. But for me, this is going to cover a gift for four people. So um, I felt it was a really reasonable uh, amount of money to be spent for you know, everyone to get their backup solution on. So that's, that's what I'm using. I like that. I like, see, the reason why I say mine's a half solution and yours is a complete solution is because you're going with open media vault. So it's a, it's an appliance. There's a web UI. Right. You could even give them the URL and the login and they could, they could futz with it. Whereas mine is like, I think I'd load Debian and then I harass me. And I think I'd do like, mine's a half baked idea, but that's a fully formed one. So I think that's really nice. And Good call on the Orange Pi Zero. That's a nice little device for this. It's questionable if I'll give them the URL to log into it. I know. But like, I may you just say that unless you have it. to. Yeah, exactly. I may just put a service door uh, in there yep. for myself as well. See, yeah. it's, these, it's these white lies that keep families together. That's right. right Everybody right. stays happy. So there is also a solution that's along all of these same lines that makes it really easy to one-click install things like a wiki and mumble and Nextcloud. But it's not quite as DIY as everything we've been talking about. I've never tried the Freedom Box before, but it looks like a really cool project. Each Freedom Box includes a single board computer with an ARM Cortex A7 processor running at a gigahertz. It's got a gig of RAM, two USB, two ports. It's got gigabit, one native SATA drive, and an HDMI port. And it comes with a 32 gigabyte micro SD card that has the Freedom Box software pre-installed couple other neat things, though. Inside its little case, it has a built-in battery. It sits inside the case, so the Freedom Box doesn't lose power if you lose electricity. Nice. I really like that. And it's running Debian under the hood. It's all running on top of Debian. So it's kind of a, a, it's, it's a darling project of Debian. Worth checking out the Freedom Box. I think it ran for eighty something dollars, eighty five something dollars, and it's it's got a platform that lets you just choose these massive open source software stacks as like a one click deployment, at like like VPSs do. Only it's on this little tiny Freedom Box that you put in your own network. It seems like a great way to introduce people who are interested in playing with this software, but maybe aren't the most technical to mm-hmm. get some of those benefits. All right, so let's talk about giving the gift of remote support with SSH. This is something you and I decided to do just for our own convenience, and it's working out really well, so we thought we'd share it with the audience. We may have mentioned it maybe even one episode before, but Wes and I love these self-healing reverse SSH tunnels. 
that you set up using Systemd. Oh, yeah. It's so easy. And it's great because Systemd is aware of your network state and all of these things um, that make it an ideal way to keep a persistent reverse connection. We'll have a link in the show notes. In short, you create a Systemd unit file. It just sort of spells out how to do this SSH connection using the right command line flags and the right user information. And then you enable it and start it. And then there is a persistent, always-on SSH connection to whatever you tell it to. And in, in my case, it's a VPS. Right. You, you will need some sort of publicly accessible bastion host out there to make this work really well. But, I mean, come on. A lot of us already have one of these running somewhere. Yeah. You could also yeah. get get by with you know something forwarded on your own network if, if you needed to. Yeah, if you, have a, if you have a public IP and you want to open the port, you could even have it connect back to an SSH I mean, I'm sorry, you could have it connect back to um, a DNS address. I've hard-coded an IP, and no, actually, I did use DNS. So yeah, even if my IP changes, it's fine. If you have dynamic DNS, you'd be fine. And and the idea here is really you're just going to forward the, the port of your local SSH connection up onto that easily accessible server. And then you can use SSH's great support for jump hosts to just immediately jump right on through the bastion and get to whatever system you need, no matter how many levels of NAT are involved. Okay, all right, all right. We've got to explain this just a little bit more because this is such a freaking cool thing that SSH does that it's worth just everybody understanding what a jump host is. Right, so you used to be able to do this in all kinds of ways, including super hacky ones involving Netcat, but these days <laughs> with modern SSH, the proxy jump feature is baked right in. And so you can just tell, you know, you, you tell SSH, hey, I want to go to this host, but you can tell it it needs a jump host. So it'll first establish a connection to the jump host, and then on that box, using its DNS settings, whatever you need, it'll then go make the request to the host that you actually want to get to. So you can chain this, you can go many levels deep if you want to, but two is usually enough. My SSH config file is uh, maybe 100 lines long because I just chain multiple boxes together. So <laughs> I use proxy com- proxy jump every day, and it's wonderful. You can also specify non-standard ports, users, all that kind of stuff in there. So, you know, the SSH config file is probably one of the most important, you know, second probably only to my SSH keys on my systems. Right, mm-hmm. and that way when, you know, when the person you're supporting gives you a call and says, hey, this isn't working, you don't have to worry about it. You can just type SSH, whatever name you've given it, Yep, and you're in. And what I've done is I've made little notes to myself. So th- this computer is this jump address. This computer is this jump address. And when they say, hey, I need help, I'll just open up that text document, highlight, paste in my terminal, and go. And I'll be on their system. I really, I know, because I already, I already set up the keys and everything. So I really, really strongly recommend either for yourself, if you need to get access to your machine, that's like even, even my RV machines, which are behind double carrier grade NATs. Bob's your uncle, man. Works just fine. Richard is indeed my uncle. <clears throat> now, we'll have links to that. We'll have links to explain the jump post. I've mentioned the links a lot. So I, I, I realize I've been throwing that out there a ton this episode. And I haven't said where you get those. And I apologize. It's it's just an old habit. You go to linuxunplug.com slash 330. And we'll have all of that stuff there. So you can you can get there. Man, all of this really started because Michael sent in an email. So right? thank I you, mean, Michael. We would like more of that. If you're doing any of these or have similar projects in the works or know of some great open source software we should be using to facilitate gift ideas, linuxunplug.com slash contact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of fun stuff out there. And if you're just even making it a project for yourself, uh, I think it's worth checking out some of that stuff. We had something sort of amazing happen in the community that they didn't even know it happened. In my Linux Unplugged inbox, 
came an email asking a question. And then not even an hour later, another email came into my inbox answering the previous question. So uh, this is amazing because I, I was like, okay, we'll answer this. And then the next email that came in just did it beautifully. So let's start with uh, Malik from Germany. Malik? Malk? I'm not sure how you say it. We, By the way, Germany has been representing. Hard working over there, Germany. I think this We're is, proud of you. I think we got like four emails from Germany in this last week. And uh, so Malik writes and he says, hey, Chris, happy listener and enjoy the Linux podcast quite a lot. After listening to some interesting episodes on self-hosted and also your episodes on VPNs, I came to the conclusion that you might have some ideas to solve my very specific networking problem. You see, I'm a web developer by trade and I like to tinker a bit in my home network from time to time, but there's one problem I just can't get my head around yet. When I'm out and about, I would like to VPN to all my machines, my Linux notebook, my Apple mobile devices back in my home from any of my devices. Why? Well, I love Pi-hole, of course, and, well, I'd like to access through Pi-hole when I'm out on public internets, and I'd also like to get access to my file servers and that kind of stuff. But what's the problem, you might ask? Well, <laughs> I've got no public IP4 address since my internet provider is using something called DS Lite. Okay? I did quite a bit of research, and I can't find a way to connect to my home, but... It seems there may be a way to do it because I have an IP6 address available. I don't know how to use this right, so here's my question. Do you know of a specific guide or tutorial that discusses a multi-platform approach to connecting home with only an IPv6 public address available? I say, yes, we do. But then Lucas writes in, he says, hey there, I heard you had problems with carrier grade NAT and I felt the urge to write in. I also sit behind a carrier grade NAT at my German ISP. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and I took, it took me a while to find a solution that works for me. See, we're bringing Germans together on this podcast. At least with my ISP, the uh, carrier grade NAT is only active for IP4 addresses. So what I did is I rented a super small VPS at ionos.de and I installed a tool called Six Tunnel, which allows you to tunnel IP4 traffic through an IP6 connection. And um, this has worked brilliantly for him. He's able to get back to his home network. Um, I don't know if you really consider it a VPN, he says, but it sure has solved my problem. Wes, educate me a little bit about um, Six Tunnel because I believe. There's other solutions as well, but uh, Six Tunnel looks pretty straightforward. Looks yeah. pretty nice. Yeah, I'd actually never used it before. It is kept up to date at uh, C Project over on GitHub. If you want to check it out, it'll be in the show notes. And it allows you to use services provided by IPv6 hosts with IPv4 only applications and vice versa. So it's really just a little a flexible little connector you can put in between things. If you're on one end and you, you can't talk quite what you need to, stick six tunnel in the middle and it'll figure things out for you. Yeah. It, it, can, it can be used as a tunnel for all combinations of IP4 traffic, so you could pretty much run anything through it. Um, and it looks like it also has a lot of flexibility. I, I have a link to the man page in the notes, and I'm reading through it right now. I'm like, okay, this is something I'm going to look into. I, I had also, you and I at one point had talked about other solutions using IPv6. So it seems like the audience has sort of clicked into something that you and I were also kind of orbiting around. And uh, I want to also mention that I had a follow-up email from Ryan, the developer of Nebula, and he gave me the suggestion of configuring both of my Nebula clients behind that with uh, ports of zero. 
So they randomly select ports when they're trying to break through the net. Sounds like we've got some more testing to do. Yep. So I will test that indeed. And uh, hopefully that answered some questions. If you've got some follow-up or feedback or ideas for the show, like Wes mentioned earlier, linuxunplugcom slash contact. That's how you get it into the show. We're trying to do um, just a little bit more of that towards the end of the year, just to hear from everybody, get some different stuff on the air. Because we always read the emails, but we don't always feature them on air. But I thought I know, something about this time of year feels like the right time right. to do it. Right. I mean, it's one of, the, one of the best ways we get to hear directly from you, and we love that. Now, check out user error. Dan wasn't able to make it on because of internet connections, but error.show, so good. User Air, one of my favorite podcasts of all time. Go check it out. And if there's one of our podcasts to share with your friends and family over this all upcoming holidays, it's User Air, for it sure. It is. It's the one I listen to with the lady, and she loves it. It makes me laugh every time. TechSnap.Systems for more West Payne with Jim Salter, talking about things over there. And check out Alex and I on Self-Hosted, selfhosted.show. New episode is coming out this week, Ooh. and it's packed. It's packed. And don't forget about my Friday stream. I don't know if it's a good idea or not. And I need you to like go to that get together thing so I know if I should even bother. I know I'm very needy. We listen to you. But I thought this would be a good thing. Distros and drinks. What could go wrong? Anyways, see you back here next Tuesday. Now we need them titles. JBTitles.com. We all go vote. Something something fun. You know, I enjoyed this episode. I think it should be a fun one. Uh, the gift of Linux is not, I think, it's a little too on the nose. Yeah, have you looked to see what's trending already? Oh, let's go check it out. JBTitles.com. Let's investigate. You know, let's just do the gift that. Of Germans. I think we, haven't, we don't have enough votes, so everybody go uh, vote. It's urgent. I've been keeping an eye on that Gnome Shell and Mutter development blog. Yes. <clears throat> They're working on something really cool. That is going to make Mutter even better. So one of the areas they've tried to focus on is just the general improvements of Mutter, like we touched on with Cassidy, right? Well, now they're working on really, really specific update areas. So Mutter only has to update small little bits of the screen. Much quicker, less work, less overhead. Way better. Way, way better. Right, and that's exactly the kind of change that will stumble, I think, very far downstream. So as the way they put it, uh, Mutter has received the ability to update multiple regions independently without using bounding rectangles. (laughs) I love developers. And they have some screenshots that actually, yeah, make it a little more obvious. There's a lot of other highlights on there, but... um, like I said, I like I promised, I'm keeping an eye on this Gnome Shell and Mutter development blog because it's so inspiring to see what they're working on and have a better appreciation as to I can feel the desktop getting better, but why is it getting better? And what are the what are the hard parts of this that otherwise we'd have no idea about? I can't help but respect their work even more when they do this. And it's it's a really well done post with, like I said, screenshots, but also tons of links properly laid out. There's yes. real thought to the organization of it. There's an embedded video of the app grid improvements.
I think you really have to really call out how much work that is, right? You've already done all the code change. That's a lot of work in and of itself. But then to go write up a blog post, that's also a significant amount of work. Yeah, it, it, it takes a long time, and they're nailing it. They've, they've really stuck to it, so really impressed with it. I'll have a link to that as well, because it's worth following. I just put it in my feed reader, and I'm just going to see what they're doing. 